Knowing the purpose of a thing has a lot to do with what you then do with it, right? When you know what it's for, you have a better idea than to what to do with it. So knowing the purpose of a thing uh, is, is quite instructional in terms of what you do with that thing. Uh, knowing something of a message, knowing something of a message also uh, has some impact. Uh, it has some impact in terms of how we receive it. Uh, so you might have some questions that are worth asking at the, at, or when it comes to receiving a particular message, such as, you know, what is that message? Who is it for? Who is it from? Why was it sent? Uh, that, that would apply in, in so many ways. Perhaps a, a letter that shows up in, in your mailbox, uh, a, a post that's up on your, your wall, a call uh, that you get from home, a voicemail that you're seeing blinking on your phone. Uh, an alert, maybe, some kind of alert, news alert that comes over uh, your weather radio. Um, one more in terms of uh, understanding what that message is about has implications for how you receive it. There's one more. It's a sermon that you hear. A sermon that you hear, one, understanding what that's about and what that's for and how it comes in, has come to pass and what's the, what are the dynamics in play there has a lot to do, at least it should, with how you receive it. And that's something that we all need to consider. We, we really, really do. Now, I've been thinking about that a lot just in recent days um, as we're moving, as Sarah and I are moving into this sabbatical time because we're not going to be here. We're going to be at other churches on different Sundays listening to, I'm going to be where you are, learning what it is to, to listen to a sermon. Uh, and, and this is certainly something that, that we all, you all need to be thinking about with all these guest preachers coming in and any Sunday that you're stuck listening to me, you need to be wrestling with what does, it, we need to be wrestling with what does it mean to hear a sermon? Biblically speaking, what does the Bible have to say about this issue. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been in this little mini-series on, on this topic of, of listening, and it started off out of James 1 a few weeks ago when Will was preaching out of that, and th th that text in James 1 that we're, we're told to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, and then we kind of sprung out of that into asking the question, well, what does it mean to listen to criticism? And then the next week was, what does it mean to listen to the news? And now this week, wrapping it all up, what does it mean to listen to a sermon? That's right, this is a sermon on how to listen to a sermon, which is kind of, I know, a bit circular. Just stop with the first rotation, okay? Uh, let's go to Acts, Acts chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I want to read you these words from uh, Jesus' words as Mark quotes them to us in Mark chapter 4. So this is, I'm stalling as you're turning to Acts 17, but these words from Mark 4 really should get our attention as we're wrestling with this question, where Jesus says, and He said to them, this is to the disciples, He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, with that in mind, let's go to the text. Those are sobering words that Jesus speaks. Listening to a sermon is not like listening to anything else for any of us. We're listening to the Word of God proclaimed. It can't be like anything else. It can't. Let's go to the text. Acts chapter 17. 
verses 1 through 15. Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. It's there on the screen. You can follow along that way. Uh, This is after the Gospels and just before Paul's letters and the other letters begin. Uh, But we have this, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the lives of the apostles as recorded by Luke. Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that You have told us that Your Word, with that Word comes blessing as we plant our roots down into that stream we can become like the tree that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that we would do, You would prosper us. And yet the opposite is true to the degree that we would not, that we would fail to do this, that we would become more like chaff, that the wind would drive away. And we would not, by any stretch, want to be like the chaff but we confess we struggle a bit with what it does mean to set those roots down into Your Word, into those waters. And so we ask that You would please, 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 would You teach us? Would You teach us what it means to listen to Your Word? What it means even to to listen to Your Word preached? What does that mean? What What do you want us to hear? Surely You have told us. We can see something of that here. And we ask that you would give us teachable hearts, and we pray this in your name. Amen. There is a, of course, of course, you can see this as, as Luke, the author of uh, his, the second part of his two-part volume, Luke and then the Acts. Luke is drawing and is calling attention to a contrast here, a contrast between what's happening there in the city of Thessalonica 
and a contrast between what's happening just a little bit later down the road in the city that we know as Berea. Now, you should know that Paul was, he was in Thessalonica with, with purpose. If you pay attention to what Luke says, he has passed through other notable known places in order to go there. That's his destination. That's his, his desire. His, his, it's, 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 it's on his trip planner. It's on his map quest. It's where he's heading. And the reason being that Thessalonica is a major city. It's the capital city of the province of Macedonia. And therein, it's a large city. It's a prosperous city. And to Thessalonica, Paul goes. Well, that's worth noting. Berea is a whole lot different. Just not even talking about the, the reception yet, just talking about the, the differences of the city. Why Paul goes to Berea is completely different as to why he goes to Thessalonica. He planned on going to Thessalonica. He did not plan on going to Berea. And surely the mood that he and his partners were in was probably just a little bit different. And the nature of how they were praying in the course of their, as they're entering those, those city gates, those two respective city gates, was completely different as, as well. Berea is down in the foothills south of uh, Thessalonica. It is not uh, really much in terms of notability as far as history and the politics at the time were concerned. It's, it's something of a backwater town. It's, it's off the beaten path. There was a road. Of course, there was a road, but not one of the major roads that you would take to get there. Differences, differences between the two towns. Now let's talk about the differences in the reception. Wildly different reception Paul and the message, the messenger and the message receives in Thessalonica and Berea. Think with me. It's the same message, right? And the same messenger, but completely different receptions in those two places, and Luke is clearly trying to draw the reader's attention to this and to get us to wrestle with what's going on here. Why? Why the different receptions? What are they, to be sure? That, that's worth noting. But also, why the different reception as, as well? Uh, we, we've been talking again, as I said at the introduction, we've been talking over the last few weeks as to how the gospel has implications for how we listen to everything how we absorb, how we receive, how we encounter, how we wrestle with everything in life. Specifically, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about criticism. That's an everyday reality. We need to reckon with that. If you're not, he if you're not hearing criticism, you need to go to get your ears checked. That's a reality that we've got to reckon with. Also, how do we reckon with the news? How do we re receive? How do we absorb? How do we respond to that? all different kinds of news. That's what we talked about last week. Now this week, this time we're looking at how do we listen to, how do we hear, how do we absorb, how do we respond to a sermon? Again, the gospel has implications for how we listen to absolutely everything, including a sermon. Now, there's two points here that I want to bring up over the next few minutes. The differences, the distinctions that Luke is, is bringing up, that he's drawing our attention to, and the first has to do with the inner response, excuse me, the inner posture, the inner posture of the recipients of the Word, and then the second thing is, following right on the heels of that, the outer response. The inner posture, that's the first thing, and you can, we can see this in the text in both places, and then following up right on the heels of that, the outer response, and the two, as you can imagine, are very much connected together. 
All right, let's look at this. First, the inner posture. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the attitude. We're talking about the approach. We're talking about the positioning of the heart. As the Word is being received, as we're coming under, in this case, we're talking about the preaching of the Word. And again, there's a huge contrast that we're seeing here between the people, recipients of this Word in Thessalonica and in Berea. Huge contrast in their inner posture. Luke would have us to understand that our inner posture is not to be that formed by our idolatry. Okay? Our idolatrous hearts are not to to have first say, if you will, in how we're responding to this, this Word. Now, let's look at this. You can, you can see this in, in what's going on in Thessalonica, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. They were envious. There's a new guy in town with this new message, likely, from their perspective, blasphemous, and all these people that they've been trying to reach and make part of their tribe are following after him now, joining him now. And by the way, some of them are well healed and taking their money with them. So they're jealous. They're envious. But that's actually not the deep issue. The deep issue here is they know they are, they are now and stand to lose yet more power and influence. That's the kicker. They know they stand to lose power and influence. However orthodox their profession may be, however many passages of the Torah they had memorized, however much of the ancient traditions they loved and held to, the fact was their functional God was their desire, their pursuit of power and influence, and that's what held their hearts. That's what held their hearts. That's why they responded the way that they do. That they are idolaters. These folks there who are attending the synagogue week after week after week after week. It's what ruled their hearts. It's what oftentimes rules our hearts. Idols of many, many kinds. And Luke is saying, don't let that be the inner posture of your heart. Look over here to Berea. Look over here to what we see going on here, and we see something here again of, of, of the deeper matters, and you, look at, and you can see it in verse 11. Now these Jews, you see the contrast he's setting up here, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Uh, now you might think by what he said there that what he means is these are folks who are high-born and of, of noble birth. Now, that is one way that word can be used, but there was another way at that time that the word that we translate as noble or nobility could be, could be understood, and it has to do with being fair, with being tolerant, with being a seeker of truth, with being thoughtful, with being open-minded. There's a, in that sense, their, their character, not their heritage. Their character is that of nobility. And that's what's going on here. That's what's forming the deeper issue that is, is, is the soil from which their response grows. And, and Luke would have us to pay attention to that. See, see the humility of their hearts. See the teachability of their spirit. See the hunger and thirst and longing that they have to hear from God. Because rightfully, they know themselves rock bottom to be finite 
fallen creatures who need to hear from their Creator. They know they don't know it all. They know that they have not arrived. They know that they need to hear. They know that they do not have the answers, and it is arrogant and foolish to think that they would. You see how that's the posture that's being commended to us, this nobility of spirit, this humility, this teachability, this receptiveness. That's their inner posture. That's what's being commended. What Luke is showing us here is, as he's pointing us, looking again at the Thessalonians, is he's saying, don't, look, don't be clueless hearers. Don't be close-minded hearers. Don't be hypercritical, continually, perpetually uh, critical hearers who only hear and absorb what they want to and, and just filter out all the rest because it's uncomfortable. Don't be a hearer of the Word like that because that's not to be a hearer at all. Not at all. Related to that, as we sit under the teaching of the Word anywhere, anywhere, we need to expect to be challenged, recognizing two things, who we are and who He is. As He is speaking to us through His Word, we should expect, given who we are and who He is, to be challenged as finite, fallen people. If we, if, if we walk out of a time of listening to the Word preached and there's no sense of challenge, we should ask ourselves, have we heard, did we hear anything? Have we heard anything? Sometimes, sometimes we should expect to be uncomfortable, just like with any medicine. The gospel, the gospel impacts how we listen, how we listen to a sermon, and it forms that inner posture. All right, well, that then takes us to the outer response. Uh, the inner, inner posture is the soil. We're asking now, how then does this fruit come up? Uh, or you can put it this way, it is the, the foundation from which the structure rises. Well, what do we see? Again, Luke would have us to see a very strong, stark contrast here between the folks in Thessalonica and the folks in Berea. What we're being called to is not to begin with simply a response of hostile resistance. Uh, sadly, of course, that is our condition uh, often, but we're being called away from that. Verses 5 through 9, you can see it here. Acts 17, verses 5 through 9, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest... They let them go. Let's track the flow of events here if we can, all right? And I, I'm, I'm just simply going to read back to you the verbs, 
or participles, if you're an English grammarian, don't get bunched up there. But uh, so what do we see? Taking, forming, setting, attacking, seeking, dragging, shouting, disturbing. Not a pretty picture. This is real persecution going on there, calling for real perseverance on the part of the Christians there in Thessalonica. Let's trace the root. Where did this come from? Why did this come about? What's going on here? It takes you right back to the inner posture. Their idolatry drove their hostility. Their idolatry drove their hostility. It always does. It always does. That's the way it, 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 it always works. That's, so they had to do. We all have to do this. We have to worship and serve the God that holds our hearts. What is the God that held their heart? Power and influence. They had to worship and serve it and do anything it took to defend that God. We all do that. Our response simply bears out who or what we actually worship. That outer response betrays what our inner posture really is. And that's what you see going there on there in Thessalonica. As opposed to this, what Luke is calling for is not this hostile resistance, but an inner receptiveness, something deep and profound. And this is what we see in Berea. Let me take you again to that, path, to that part of the text, verses 11 and 12. Very, very different. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. They received this message that Paul proclaimed. They welcomed it with, uh, with eagerness, with a readiness of mind and spirit to engage it. They examined it. They, actually, it says that they examined it and compared, contrasted with their holy scriptures, which for them, of course, was what? The Old Testament. That's all they had at that point. And, and there, the language is, it would be that, you could say, of a judicial investigation. They're, they're hearing, they're engaged, their minds are active, their hearts are open and hungry. There's nothing passive about this, this at all. So one commentator put it this way, they are combining receptivity with critical questioning. And that's what's commended. That's what's being commended here. Now, why? Why are, they, why are they responding this way? Again, same message, same messenger, very different response, right? From just up the, a few miles up the road at Thessalonica. Why? Again, you trace it back to the inner posture. Where were their hearts as they came to engage with this teaching? Well, these were folks, you could say, who had true integrity, who were recognizing and wrestling with, at the same time, their biases, owning their biases, admitting their biases, and submitting them to the Lord before His Word. They, they, were, they were striving, striving to hear, striving to learn, striving 
recognizing again, none of us, none of us, none of us has arrived. And we need to hear. That is the outer response that's being commended. The Christian perspective on the Scriptures, no doubt some of you have heard these words no few times. Maybe for some of you this might be the first time, and that's okay. One of the many places you can go in the Scriptures to hear something as to what God says about His Word is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all right? So what does that say? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All right, let's just assume for a minute we believe that. Let's just assume for a minute we believe that those words are true of the Word. Then when we come to sit under the preaching of the Word, we should expect to absorb many benefits, right? If 2 Timothy 3 is true, we should come with the hope and expectation that we will be blessed just as surely as the poor and the sick in Jesus' day came to the pool at Bethesda longing, expecting, hoping to be healed. And who met them there? at least on one occasion. Jesus. Jesus did. We should have great hope and great expectation as we come to sit under the preaching of the Word. Not just that, though. Great resolve. Great resolve not to be just hearers. Careless hearers. Close-minded hearers hypercritical hearers, or hearers of any kind who simply refuse to be doers. We are to be doers. We are to be doers. Again, the gospel, the gospel speaks to how we are to listen to a sermon, both in terms of the inner posture and the outer response. It speaks right into these matters. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? Why do we need to, to wrestle with this? And can I just say it this plainly? It is no light thing to hear God speak. It is no light thing to hear God speak. Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was an English Anglican pastor. He lived from 1759 to 1836, he was the pastor at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, get this, for 54 years. I'm not even halfway there. <laughs> okay? He, he is a hero of such laudable figures in our day as John Piper. He was something of a... Uh, of a Pre, uh, how shall I say? He was also a hero, something of a mentor for the late John Stott as well, his ministry, uh, Charles Simeon. He was a, a great, just a prolific uh, preacher, a mentor to hundreds of pastors in England at the time, a, a 
a great force in the church of the day and in the revivals of the period, and he, among many, many other things, I could just go on and on and on. You can look up so much about Charles Simeon online. He wrote this little treatise, this little treatise called How to Hear Sermons. I guess he preached for 54 years. Maybe he was hoping somebody would read that. Um, how, how to Hear Sermons. And among several, many good things that he pointed out that we would do really well as radical as this is for us to get our heads around, we would do really well in our day to recapture something of what Simeon says in this little treatise. And what's what he said. He said, the preacher is an ambassador for God who speaks on Christ's behalf. Now, hold on. I know a few of you, your flags are going up. Just hold on. He, he is an ambassador for God who speaks on Christ's behalf so long as, so long as what he says is grounded in the Scriptures, so long as what he says is consistent with the holy text. There's your qualifier fulfilled. Now, back to the statement. That said, he is an ambassador for God. To the degree that he is faithful, to that degree that he is what he says is consistent and, and anchored in the scriptures, he is a spokesman for Jesus. Which means then, when we hear that word preach and that word preach faithfully, we have to take that as God speaking to us. That then means it really matters how we hear a sermon. You see the, the, the inescapable, perhaps uncomfortable, but inescapable logic there. Which then takes us back to Mark 4. Jesus' words. Mark 4, verses 25 and 26. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Friends, there are huge stakes. You hear what Jesus is saying in Mark 4? There are huge stakes in how we listen to the Word of God. Tremendous ramifications for our very hearts, our very souls. Every one of us. Every one of us. That inner posture matters. That outer response matters. So may we be people, not just of the Word, but people of prayer. Praying for the preacher. Praying that, I'm thinking about for the next three months, for you all, and wherever Sarah and I go, praying for the preacher, that he will be faithful, that he will be courageous, that he will be clear, that he will be compassionate, that he will somehow wed together both gentleness and strength at the same time, rooted, grounded in the Scriptures such that he can say no other with a heart breaking for the people before him. Pray for the preacher and let's pray for ourselves that we would hear that word preached and not be hearers only, 
but doers. Let's pray. Lord, clearly, your word tells us how to listen to the word. The scriptures, your word as we find in the pages of the holy text are unlike any other. These are God-breathed, so its benefits are unlike any other. And so we ask that you would help us to listen like we would nowhere else and pray like we would at no time else. This is so countercultural. This is so counterintuitive to the way we approach, well, frankly, not just everything, but even your word at times. And we ask that you would help us. May these things, may, we, may you make us to be Bereans. Make us to be Bereans. Make it so with us, and would you bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. We ask this in your name. Amen.